0: What you did to deserve after school detention, but you're here listening on Open Lines Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today, this afternoon. Whenever it is you're actually listening to this, we're going to clear some karma the old school way by staying after school and listening to a lecture. This is a uh, series of li- snippets from a like raw footage from an interview that Daniel Quinn did for a a documentary called What a Way to Go, Life at the End of Empire. And Daniel Quinn uh, wrote a a lot of books. Uh, The one that impacted me the most was called Ishmael, Um, and he's got another kind of hard-to-find one called The Book of the Damned, which uh, is basically Ishmael stripped down. And then uh, another book i I read which he co-wrote is called uh, a newcomers guide to the afterlife and when, when I ever I see the star card in tarot uh, I always feel like that book is the book that um, describes where you are spirit where we are spiritually when we pull the star card so there's, there's a little background information to my reading of Daniel Quinn, but Daniel Quinn is a, um, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. He has kind of some radical ideas, but maybe really not so much. So let's just have a listen and see if we can all learn something today. I also, I do not own any of this material. This is purely for educational purposes. I will post a link to the YouTube video on www.artbellisdead.com as soon as this finishes airing live. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon.
1: What started me out writing uh
2: the book that eventually became Ishmael, was how could three million years of human life be meaningless? It had to have a meaning, and that's what drove me. And The meaning that I saw was that the way people were living at that time, during that vast period, was a way that I didn't even have the word sustainable at that time. It wasn't in use at that time. They were living in a way in which humans could live for millions of years tens of millions of years and that's something <laughs> man now we're saying how many decades can we can we have and if we go on living this way it's not many uh, and so I of course, everyone thought I was saying, well, you mean we should go back and live in caves and get our food on with spears? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that we've got to learn, live and look and learn and understand how we came to be
1: devourers of the Earth. I know that some uh,
2: writers uh, that have been influential recently have uh, I can't think of the name right now. That's big, right. big important book. Uh, Diamond. Jerry Diamond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, made the statement that approximately that agriculture is to blame for all this, and this represents. A a misunderstanding of what agriculture is. Uh, Agriculture is nothing more than fostering the regrowth of the foods that you favor. And my guess is that humans have been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, We did not invent agriculture. What we invented was something that I call totalitarian agriculture which is predicated on the notion that it all belongs to us. Everything, every bit of it, and we can do with it what we want. If we see a piece of land, it belongs to us. We can kill off anything we don't want on the land, we put a fence around the land, we can grow the food we want on the land, and nobody else can touch it. That's the totalitarian mindset, and that's our form of agriculture. But if you go among uh, tribal peoples around the world, the ones that remain, most of them are agriculturalists, but they have no such notions about their agriculture. They practice sustainable agriculture, uh, so that's that's the difference. And and I would agree that totalitarian agriculture has been a disaster, uh, mainly because it has fueled this tremendous population growth of ours. And. People, I think, have yet uh, to see the difference between um, my view of what's happening and uh, what's the name of the 19th century uh, person who said we were going to run out of food. um, Malthus? Malthus, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, For Malthus, he thought that we were always catching up with our growing population, whereas, in fact, our growing population is always catching up with our food production. We have a food race on our hands, which is like the Cold War arms race, where we would make a a weapon, the Russians would make a uh, better weapon, well, we'd have to make a better weapon, they'd make a better weapon, we'd make a better weapon and so on. And that's what made it a race. And it was, of course, perpetually escalating. And it was, you know, extremely dangerous, obviously. And the only way to end it was the way that Gorbachev ended it. He said, we quit. No one to race with. We are in a food race, and everyone is pulling for food production, because our population is growing. But of course, every time we make a win on the side of food production, there's a win on the side of population growth. Win, 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 win. And that's why we're a- annually adding 77 million people to our population. Uh, and people have this terrible delusion that we're growing more food in order to feed the starving. The starving do not get fed. The starving population is a growing population, just the way every other part of the population is growing. It's 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 a delusion. Uh, we are growing more food to grow more people, and this is an extremely hard idea for people to accept. Um, and quite remarkably there are even biologists who don't accept it who, who see that what's well, called human exceptionalism all other species this is true of give them more food population goes up absolutely no question about it every single one give them more food the population will go up give them less food the population will go down but not humans it doesn't matter how much food you give them the population can go up no matter what mm-hmm. Give them no food at all, the population's gonna go up. It's madness. You know, it's just absolute absurdity. But people absolutely believe this, uh, and very seriously believe this, that, that we could cut food back and the human population would keep on
1: going. I'm not sure why. I think it's because they figure we're so randy.
2: <laughs> well, the, the boiling frog metaphor is not not my own by any means. Uh, The Systems uh, thinkers have have used this metaphor for a long time. But it is that if you put a frog into room temperature water and then turn the heat on low, uh, the frog will be quite happy uh, to sit there until the water is boiling and it's dead and but of course on the other hand if, if you toss a frog into water that is boiling it will do its best to get the hell out uh, and we've definitely been uh, in that situation for the last last 40 years um, Silent Spring was so shocking. Because it had always been assumed that we could we could do anything to the earth and it would take care of it somehow or in poison it'll give us back fresh water and so this really woke us up to the fact that that's not the case uh, the world is vulnerable to what we do to it uh, and then. Just six years later, uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich came out with the population bomb, uh, which was pretty disconcerting. Uh, Nobody had really been thinking much about population. There wasn't really a great deal of need at that point, and there were not even three billion of us at that point. We thought we could do something about pollution, you know, write your congressman, get tougher laws passed, and so on. And only gradually did we realize that uh, a lot of people in Washington care a lot more about industries than they do about people. Uh, And that, unfortunately, hasn't changed at all. Uh, And all of those laws were compromises anyway. Uh, So, the water has been getting hotter and hotter and hotter, uh, but people are are sitting there saying, well, yeah, it's definitely a little warmer than it used to be, but everything's okay. And Of course, a lot of people don't, a large portion of the population doesn't remember what it was like in 1950 when there was utterly no idea that we weren't going to go on forever. I mean, the future was just absolutely a glowing paradise. Uh, No one remotely imagined that, that anything, any crisis, whatever, was awaiting us, provided we didn't destroy ourselves with thermonuclear weapons. Uh, so that many people don't realize how that in my lifetime the water has gone from pleasantly cool to near boiling. Uh, I'm sure they, they soon will. Uh, I imagine in your conversation with the person about uh, global warming has made connections with these horrible storms that we've been having. I haven't looked into it at all. It's not, not my field, but I have to assume that there is a connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, will it wake people up? I don't know. I don't, it seems like someone like George Bush is incapable of being waken, awakened. Uh, and yet, if, if he could run for a third term, I'm, I'm sure he would get it again. That's discouraging. Uh, That's frightening.
1: Uh, When are people going to wake up to the fact that the, the water is simmering? Yeah, the most dangerous lie
2: that we have that is prevalent today is quite an old one. Uh, easily traced back to the Middle Ages, the age of faith. The idea that there is a chain of being uh, and we are at the tip top and really step below us is vast. Uh, We are uh, superior to all other creatures And our lives are independent of theirs. They are down there boiling in in, uh, the jungle, Um, but we're not. This survived uh, the Renaissance. Uh, A lot of other very fundamental ideas got changed during the Renaissance, but this one survived, survived the Enlightenment, survived to the present day. Uh, we are not part of that community. We're above it. We're invulnerable, and this, there is no more dangerous idea in the world than this one. And if there are still people living here in 200 years, they will know that we are as much a part of that community as caterpillars or camels or porpoises or palm trees. I I can predict this with confidence because if people go on thinking the way we think, then there will not be people here in 200 years. I feel quite sure about that. So this is the one that I would uproot if I could. When we look at ourselves, we are taught to think that we are humanity. Uh, And if there are other people out there that were different from us. Well, when they're degenerates, or they're just not as far advanced as we are. Uh, but we can judge everyone by by us. We are the standard, and we are the standard toward which humanity humanity has been reaching for from the beginning. Uh, for first. Three million years or five million years, wherever you want to start, uh, they were pretty poor specimens. Uh, but then, about ten thousand years ago, we came along and began doing things and, and building civilization. And uh, this is where it was all meant to, to go. Which is one reason why <coughs> we can't give it up: is this is the way humans were meant to live from the beginning and it'd be better to become extinct than to let it go. I'm afraid that a lot of people would see it that way. We must hold on to it, even if it kills us. It, it puzzled people that there were other civilizations besides ours that uh, were, were different from ours. Um, the succession of civilizations in uh, Central America, and uh, they provide a key to understanding why ours is different. Uh, if they had been like us when we arrived, when Europeans arrived here, the entire continent would have been uh, civilized would have been cities, but they were not like us because they did not think that they had the one right way to live and that everyone in the world should be made to live that way. They were perfectly content to have their little tiny civilization and you know, conquered peoples around them as a buffer. It was fine. They didn't have to change everybody in the world, and that's what just differentiates us from them. Globalization began a long, long time ago.
1: This is, this is just the most recent manifestation of it. Well, there's no doubt that uh, the situation is pretty desperate. Uh, when I
2: wrote Ishmael, when I was writing Ishmael, I did make the point that we were systematically attacking. Uh, the community that is keeping us alive, destroying its diversity. But I had no idea that we were actually entering a period of mass extinctions. Uh, This is very grave. Uh, By now it's no longer a question among biologists. And people are, it doesn't make a very good news story uh, for some reason. And people seem very cool about it. Uh, well, so 200 species are becoming extinct every day, but well, we're not one of them, so what's the big deal? But the point is that if this goes on and on and on and on, there's going to be come a point when the system is going to collapse. And. Uh, this is not going to be just bad for us. Uh, major uh, fundamental food chains are going to be destroyed. And we're very likely to become ex- as extinct as the dinosaurs. Uh, probably most large mammals will. Uh, the cockroaches won't notice it. So that's my big concern. If, if of course, the worst happens with the uh, uh, depletion of oil, then of course there will be an enormous die-off. Uh, that prospect doesn't make me rejoice, because I know it's, it's going to be unthinkably horrible. Uh, but other than that, I, I don't see the possibility of a, of a, of a die-off, meaning a gradual thing. Because if we keep going, uh, I've used this analogy many times, but it's a a good one. Uh, We are like people who live in a very tall building, brick building, and live on the top floor. And every day, we go out, go down to the lower floors. And at random, we knock bricks out and take them upstairs to the top and build higher every day. Downstairs, 200 bricks, take them upstairs. And the building is perfectly stable. But it's not going to be stable forever because we are attacking the structural integrity of the building. And <clears throat> one of these days, these uh, structural uh, deficiencies are going to combine. This one's going to get together with this one, and this one, and they're going to br- bring them all together. And the thing's going to go, boom, like that in minutes. Uh, this is what we're doing to the living community on which we are living on top. Uh, on top of which we are living, <laughs> to put it grammatically. And it uh, seems perfectly stapled, but 200 species a day. This is is calamitous. You know, there are millions of species out there. You know, we know that. But 200 species a day, day after day after day, year after year. And as our population increases, it's going to turn into 400 species a day, and 1,000 species a day. And there's going to come a day, when the system is going to collapse, and my guess is that the human die-off will be one hundred percent. As I've said, I, you know, I think that uh, uh, the scorpions won't notice. They didn't notice didn't notice it when at the end Permian uh, mass extinction didn't bother the scorpions. Uh, so. The life is not going to disappear, but I fear for uh, all uh, complex, large uh, mammals and uh, lizards, probably birds. I don't know. I don't know what. But uh, people have the idea that oh yeah, well things are going to get really bad, and and uh, either we'll we'll see that you know we've got to change right away or there will be a big die-off. I'm afraid that's an optimism I can't share. The uh, threat of declining oil resources is just mind-numbing uh, because <clears throat> I'm not sure every many people realize that our, <coughs> excuse me, our agricultural resources Uh, depend on petroleum at every stage, from treatment of the soil right up to putting food on the uh, grocery store shelves. And this can be rectified, but when will we begin? And if we don't begin, (laughs) the consequences are going to be just simply mind-boggling. The secret plan is that we're going to go on this way no matter what for as long as we can. Um, I likened it to the secret plan in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, It was an open secret. Uh, Everyone knew that those Jews weren't going off to uh, resorts or to have picnics in the woods. But no one talked about it, and no one talks about this either. Um, although they're sometimes compelled to talk about it, as, as the example you just gave. You said, yes, well, of course, environmental reasons have prevented us from ex- exploiting these resources, but well, we've got to. So we'll keep on going until we just can't keep going anymore. and." Uh, Of course, it's, it's a very dangerous plan, needless to say. If you think that the panics that occurred in Houston when the hurricane approached were bad, we know how bad they were, it's not going to be anything like what is going to happen. It's not going to happen in the last six months. The panic is going to start way before that. People are going to start. Arming themselves in a serious way, they're going to start living in in fortifications. They're going to start uh, storing food, uh, and this is going to be it's going to be a long panic. And it's, it's not going to happen when the oil runs out. It's going to happen before that. Yeah. So you do,
1: we don't have 20 years. what was wrong with these people?
2: How could they possibly do this to us? It, uh, it it does shock me that people are not thinking about what their grandchildren are going to be facing. Um, the attitude of, well, I'm alright, Jack, is still, still with us. Um, I mean, I know I'm not going to be here to see what my grandchildren see.
1: But I, I fear for them very much. If you go among uh, tribal
2: peoples, uh, they don't have a sense of being evil or um, flawed. I always think of the Gabussi uh, in New, uh, New Guinea. <laughs> they are really, it's, the strangest people in the world—they uh, don't really believe that people die uh, as an inevitability. Most of the time, if somebody dies, it's somebody's fault. It's a witch, and they—they they hold a trial and. They find the witch, and the person usually confesses to being a witch. It's not a, not a torture or anything like that, and uh, they kill the witch. And the witch turns into a pig, and they some pig or other, which they eat. Uh, but they are very uh, they're very light. <laughs> most most of them have have committed a homicide, but they they don't think badly of themselves at all. Uh, they had nightly conversations with spirits, uh, quite uh, amusing conversations with spirits. Uh, and it's bizarre. but you know they're okay. they're okay with themselves. they don't, They don't see themselves as a fallen race or anything like that. Uh, we think of ourselves as a fallen species because we've screwed everything up, you know. Look at all the mess we've made. Look at all the harm we've done. There really must be something wrong with this. Uh, And of course, our way of dealing with with troublemakers has become institutionalized in law. Uh, There are no crimes among tribal peoples because they don't have laws that define crimes. Um, We define something as a crime. And if someone does it, then it's a criminal. Uh, Before the law, it wasn't a criminal. Edgar Allan Poe's wife was 13. He wasn't a criminal. There was no law against it. Um, And the only way we know to deal with people who break the laws that we make is to put them in prisons. We do that to punish them, but we also do it to rehabilitate them. Punish, rehabilitate, punish, rehabilitate. It doesn't work. Absolutely no one thinks it works, but it's it's the system we got. So uh, it really does look like we're flawed. so many criminals. I mean, how many new prisons go up every year? We're just packing them in, picking all these criminals in there. So it's certainly not unreasonable for us to perceive ourselves as deeply flawed. But of course, we're the most wonderful creatures in the world as well. Should definitely be guardians of the earth, should be appointed guardians of the earth. <laughs> we, you know, the, this is the Martian in me, you know, looking down on these people and saying, God, these are the weirdest people in the world. How how they can reconcile these ideas, think that they you know, we are the top of creation,
1: and yet we're so such wretches. It's very odd. Strange question I get is, don't you
2: think this is something that's meant to happen? Maybe, maybe we were meant to destroy the world. Of course, I say, meant by whom? <laughs>
1: this is God's plan for the earth or something? What are you talking about? I get that quite often.
2: That, that really wasn't what I was thinking. I was trying to to write a parable, really, about uh, a world in which no one cares. Uh, in which the past was suppressed uh, so thoroughly and rewritten so cunningly uh, that no one uh, felt they had any need to care. Uh, The book is unfortunately titled, I, I resisted the title, I wanted to call it Only the Blind See Paradise. And I knew I should have chosen that title as soon as I got up in front of audiences at book signings and tried to explain what was in the book. Because if I would had that title, then I could have said that that is us. <laughs> the only It only looks like paradise, this, what we've got here, only looks like paradise if you happen to be blind. And too, far too many of us are blind. They were people who didn't know who they were or where they'd come from, how, they, how things came to be this way. And in that, we're very similar. Uh, we don't know how things came to be. And people in general don't know how things came to be there, here, this way, and don't care, or don't see much reason to care. Uh,
1: the human past is irrelevant to them. I think if I were doing it now, I would not have coined the terms at all,
2: because they've misled so many people. Now I would I would have said uh, tribal and hierarchical, I guess, uh, because people think that I'm making I'm talking about character here, that uh, leavers are good people and takers are bad people. Uh, I remember very soon after the book came out, um, someone wrote to me from California saying that um, Jerry, Jerry Baker, Jerry. Mander? No, 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 the political candidate.
1: Oh, uh,
2: Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown is a lever, and his opponent is a taker. Mm. Uh, That's just nonsense. (laughs) Uh, Everyone who is a prisoner of this a uh, civilizational system that is devouring the Earth is a taker. I am a taker. Uh, it isn't a matter of choice. It isn't a matter of character. It isn't a matter of consciousness. Uh, everyone has to make a living, not counting the children of the rich. Uh, every sensate thing on Earth has to make a living. Wolves have to make a living. Butterflies have to make a living. We have to make a living. And the only way for us to make a living is by collaborating with this economic system. We are consumers. We must be consumers. We must contribute to uh, somewhere along the line, whatever we're doing, Adds to that that system, gives, creates new products, things like that. Defends people who create products, helps them promote products, whatever. And which is, this is what I was trying to get in, in Beyond Civilization. I was trying to pry open a little crack in the prison wall and say, okay, here's a, here's a way where you can uh, be less a collaborator and gain some independence of the, uh, of this economic system. Uh, the idea w- was a very strange one for most people. People think of, of tribal living as something very mysterious. There's nothing in the world simpler than, than tribal living, as I said in the book. A tribe is a group of a small group of people working together to make a living. Period. Nothing more than that. Absolutely nothing more than that. I had a, a very tribal relationship with my last publisher, uh, Bo Friedlander, uh, which we did, discovered, you know, quite quickly, because he was perfectly willing to do it as well as I. Uh, he would do things for me that had nothing to do with. Fact that I was one of his authors, things that would help me make a living. And I helped him do things that helped him make a living, because he was a small publisher. He had no great cash reserves. So I, I would do things like proofread things for him and copy edit things for him, stuff like that. And uh, I, was, I was very sorry when, he, uh, when his company went bankrupt. All,
1: all of my books were tied up for two years. Because a lot of people ask me, you know, well, isn't a a commune
2: or an intentional community the same as a tribe? And I could say, well, maybe, I don't know, it depends on on the community. But in the tribe, it wasn't, well, I and my family, we make arrowheads, and we do really well at this. And another group says, well, we collect food, and we're really good at that. Well, let's see, how kind of a deal can we make between what you make making arrowheads and what we make gathering food? It just wasn't that way. It was a group of people working together to make a living for everybody. Um, And uh, that was the key to their success. And we, um, in the absence of that I think it's probably most, the most deeply felt human need is the need to know that you were in a situation where, unless the entire tribe disappears, you were going to be taken care of for life, lifetime, cradle to grave security. And none of us have that, no matter how much money we have, none of us have that. Uh, and yet, it's the closest we can think of to that. See, oh well, God, I got five million dollars. That's going to give me what three three hundred thousand dollars a year to live on. That should do it, you know. I mean, it's not going to go away if, if my investments are okay and all of that. <laughs> and you know, striving always to get move up the ladder to a better job and all of that and consoling ourselves all the time with uh, all of the gadgets and the playthings and 24-hour sports channels for the guys. <laughs> uh, and these are all poor substitutes for the kind of wealth that we have had once and the people who live this way, still live this way, have. Which is why they will die to keep it rather than allow themselves to be sucked into this way of life which to them looks like poverty. Uh, back in the in eighties, the um, I don't know why they stopped writing stories about it, but uh, back in the eighties there were many stories about uh, tribal peoples in Brazil who were uh, t- committing suicide rather than uh, allow themselves to be overrun and sucked into our society people are finding it more and more necessary to work harder and harder and for both, you know, for uh, couples to work, both must work, and in, in the past, uh, usually only one member of the uh, family had to work, and it was much easier then, uh, 50 years ago than it is now. Uh, yeah, it's hard to hard for people to accept the fact that the more you base your society on agriculture, the harder you work. It it's, it seems to defy intuition. Uh, golly, you've got all your food out there planted and go and harvest it. You don't have to, you don't have to, oh, hunting for it or anything like that. But the fact is that when we were hunting for it and collecting it, God grew it. You know, we we didn't have to plant it. We just had to go and get it. And uh, it would be interesting sometime. This would be a project for Paul Hawken. He likes this kind of thing. Uh, To take a, a, a can of Three ounces of peas, uh, caloric value um, I don't know, 120, something like that. And find out how many calories it took to put that can of peas on, on my shelf. It's, it's probably 5,000 or something like that. And, and calories, of course, a lot of those calories came from burning fossil fuel. But an awful lot of those calories came from human labor as well. Uh, someone had to stand there at the machines, I had to run the machines, someone had to design the label, someone had to put it on the shelf, someone had to open the store. And all that stuff goes into it. And uh, just to get 120 calories of peas, it's laughable, really. Yeah. Whereas uh, in, uh, uh, among our ancestors, they go out and spend 50 calories to get one hundred and twenty calories, and so they did they, they were the
1: most leisured society that has ever existed There has to be you know, seen benefit uh,
2: what right now with the industrial revolution as it is still going on, the benefit is all, uh, I have a new idea i 'm going to make a billion dollars <laughs> well yeah, yeah you're probably right, but. It, there has to be a different kind of reward. Uh, people have to be concerned about that reward and feel that reward. You know, I've got a great idea. Uh, my children's lives will be better <laughs> if, if ever there should come about a people who care about their children's lives again. One of the difficulties they have with they say, well, what has this got to do with saving the world? It's not about saving the world, it's about getting something better for you. And because we all need something better than we've got, because that's one of the reasons why we are devouring the world, is that we are just miserable people, and we've got nothing else to do but to devour the world. Yeah, well, other culture, I probably wouldn't need to explain what I mean by that. the, The ambient voice of our culture tells us that this Is the best that humans could ever hope for. What we've got right now and where we're going is just unsurpassable. Ergo, any alternative has got to be worse. Uh, And I'm always stressing, as I stretch in Beyond Civilization, that what people need is not less but more more of what people really need. Uh, And so I've I've never asked anyone to give up anything, and I think that the movements that that try to encourage people to give up are doomed to, you know, a cult following, because uh, what they're asking them to give up are things that many people like. You know, and, and would perceive as a loss if they gave them up. Um, but that ain't going to work. That, that's not going to save us, as people say, you know, cutting off parts of their lives that they really like. You've got to show them how to get more of what they really want. And then they'll have less inclination
1: to try so hard to get things that they don't, that really don't give them anything. So we can't put the, the bricks back, but we jolly well better stop taking them out
2: and pretty soon uh, and restore uh, conditions in which uh, speciation can take place. Uh, I think it's probably pretty well agreed that speciation is, is is flat, if if not, it was going negative. Um, but we s- still have a viable community right now. It's not going to remain viable if we keep on doing what we're doing. Some uh, getting, getting us back to a, a reasonable population. I have no answers to how to do that. But people first have to understand that it must be done if we're going to survive. And once people do understand that it must be done, then people at the policy level will begin to think about it, which they're not doing now, and say, well, this is what's got to happen. This is what's got to happen. Uh, And we owe it to you, people out there, to make sure it does happen. We're not. I'm not talking. People say, well, "You mean you want to starve people to death?" No, that's not my idea at all. But something must happen uh, for the good of humanity, because I value humanity. People will ask me, "Why? Why do you care? Why should I care about humanity?" And I said, "Well, you know." It's like in your, you're in a burning building, building, you know, why should you care? Uh, I don't know. If you don't care, stay in there, and burn to death. but um, I, I, I love humanity. Uh, this culture is I don't love this culture. To survive, people are going to have to understand that we need the rest of the living community and we need, need it intact. Um, and when I say talk about saving the world, I mean saving the world as a human habitat. I um, had a long conversation with uh, a man who's been following my work for many years and said, I just can't see see that happening, people are ever going to see that. And I said, well, what's involved is self-interest. If you would like to survive, if you would like to have your children survive, if you would like to have your grandchildren survive in a decent world, in a livable world, this is what you've got to see. And if self-interest isn't strong enough, then I do worry <laughs> about the future. Uh, people are going to have to see that is it their interest to change the way they see the world
1: and the way that they deal with the world. Another author I talked to about this
2: <clears throat> once said, uh, what I miss most is Never being able to wake up or look out and feel joy as I did many years ago. And that, that, that's very painful. Uh, we live in a, a joyless, a joyless uh, society. Uh, I wish I had some good advice for young people. The best advice. People write to me often and say, I've read my Ishmael, I see what you're saying about the schools, and so I'm a junior in high school and I'm, I'm going to walk away. So I write back quick and say, don't even think about doing that, because you've got to think longer term. If we're going to turn things around, we need people everywhere who are doing their best, doing what they do best, being effective, whatever it is, whether it's in, I have got a letter from someone who just encountered my work who's a vice president of a Fortune 500 company. Well, it's terrific, you know, (laughs) that's wonderful. Uh, I don't care if you're in the worst industry in the world, uh, but you've got to do, you've got to realize your potential you can't throw that away. So stay in school. I know exactly what the schools are, but if I had quit school before I got a bachelor's degree, none of my books would ever have been written. I know that for a fact. That's what I do best. And you've got to pursue what you do best, whatever it is. And don't just think environmental engineer, you know, because you figure that's going to be the best for the world. You've got to think about, what am I good at? Like, is my real yen for politics? Go into politics. Do I really want to be a lawyer? Become a lawyer. You know, you've got to do what you do best. So that's the best advice I have for young people. I've had a lot of letters from people who say to me, thank you, Mr. Quinn. For showing me that I'm not crazy. Because people have been telling me for years that I'm crazy, you know, because I have ideas like this. Um, I hear from a lot of young people who say, uh, my friends don't get it, they don't want to get it. They think that I'm crazy, Uh, they won't listen, I try to tell them things and they get mad. Uh, And that's a tough one. And all I can say to them is, well, trust me, there are a lot of people out there who are ready to listen, and you can't worry about the ones who won't listen. Because there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot win an argument. Uh, you, you, you can win arguments, uh, but that doesn't change people. Uh, it usually makes them enemies. And um, if you teach people, then they become allies. But if you win arguments with them, they become enemies. Um, the thing is, <clears throat> people who have studied, the conversion process, religious conversion, find that um, it's much more who you hang out with than any particular doctrine or sermon or pamphlet or anything like that. If you hang out with Seventh-day Adventists, uh, you're very likely to end up being a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, And the same will be true as our numbers increase. If the people around you begin to think differently, begin to have different reactions to these things, then the holdouts are going to have to re-examine their positions and start listening again. And that's how the change, changes take place. It change, take place incrementally, by little bits, little bits and pieces. You can't go confront somebody about this stuff. That just doesn't work. Uh, If I were twenty years old and looking at the future, I know I'd I'd be very scared, and I, I can't really have any good advice for them. I mean, I'm scared.
1: Uh... Looking back over the arc of the
2: last 30 or 40 years, beginning with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, a lot of bad news came along during that period. Things that we couldn't imagine in the 50s uh, when we thought that by now we'd all be flitting around in our helicopters and uh, having robots around doing all the housework and everything, cleaning the pools. Uh, And that gradually eroded. uh, I'll tell you a brief story about Ishmael was a book. Of eight versions, the eighth version being Ishmael. Mm-hmm. The sixth version was the first version that had everything in it that yeah. you find in Ishmael, plus a good deal more. And I sent this off to an agent. This is 1984, actually, in the biggest agent, most powerful agent in New York City at the time. And they wrote back a rather pitying letter, saying, "You know, it's obvious that you have a." Uh, You put a lot of work into this, and uh, you're a very intelligent person. But the truth is, this is the 80s, not the 60s or the 70s, and nobody cares about this stuff anymore. Nobody cares about saving the world. This is the 80s, you know. And and even worse, there's absolutely nothing you can do with this material that will ever make it publishable. (laughs) So, I knew they were wrong about the second one. Uh, but I knew also that they were right about the current climate. But the climate really changed very dramatically in 1990. I don't know what what uh, 1990 was, but uh, among other things, the Bioneers was founded. Uh, among other things, Ted Turner put out a call for uh, books uh, for novels that uh, addressed global problems in a new way, which is a pretty strange thing to do. Uh, And it was uh, then that I, for the first time, wrote my book as a novel, Ishmael. But in 1990, uh, Paul Hawken was amassing the enormous base of data that was served as the foundation for the ecology of commerce. In the 1990s, there came a flood of mind-changing books. Uh, I can't even begin to name them all now. I started to make a list for for another purpose. but um, This would have stunned the agent that I sent uh, another story to be in to—he um, couldn't have foreseen this happening, mm-hmm. but I did. Although I was astounded, you know, really to see how many people were suddenly uh, sharing my uh, anxieties for the future and were beginning to look in different ways at what was going on. And that has continued, and that is the the basis for my hope for the future. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book called *The Tipping Point*. I'm not. No. Uh, the subtitle is how uh, small things can result in big changes, yeah. something like that. Uh, And the example that I gave in Ishmael was uh, the the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which took everyone by surprise. Uh, Because a tipping point had been reached among uh, the people of the Soviet Union, um, there was suddenly a a majority, a small majority, but, but a significant majority, that enabled uh, Gorbachev to do things that would have been unthinkable 10 years before. And uh, that's what we're reaching for now, is a tipping point. Right now, the people who are aware are a minority, there's, there's no doubt about that, otherwise we wouldn't have a man like George Bush in office right now. Uh, the electorate put him there because the electorate still is uh, living under the illusion that everything is okay and we can just go on living this way forever. So, this is why I see hope for the future, because we are building toward that tipping point, and there's no, no way of telling when it's going to be reached. So we're, we're not going to save the world by passing laws. Mm-hmm. Because the people who are supposed to be passing the laws are the people that the electorate are putting in there. I just saw that headline that the House of Representatives just uh, passed a bill protecting the gun industry. Poor gun industry. (laughs) They need so much protection. (laughs) Right, right. One thing that that people found hard didn't make sense to people in Ishmael uh, At one point, the pupil in Ishmael says, well, yes, but what am I supposed to do? And people, I'm sure from the very first letter, and I've received tens of thousands of letters, say, yes, I understand your book, your books, but what are we supposed to do? And Ishmael is very plain about what we're supposed to do, Uh, although he, he asked for something that is impossible for most people. Uh, He says, teach 100 people what you've learned here and urge them to teach 100 people. If that actually happened, uh, we would have reached that tipping point by now. Uh, But because people say, well, that's not fast enough, (laughs) among other things, that is amazingly fast. If everyone, I I reckon that about 20 million people have what I would call changed minds right now. Uh, That's probably a small estimate uh, from my own readership, which I believe to be about 5 million, but combined with all the other uh, people who have uh, written mind-changing books. If each one of them changed only one mind a year, we would reach a majority in 12 years. That's not too much to ask. Uh, and I think it could well happen. Uh, but people can't just sit there and say, yes, but what am I supposed to do? They're thinking, like, well, shall I write my congressman? <laughs> yeah, well, that's not going to do it. That's not going to do it. Uh, because the congressman that's in there was put in there by people who don't care. Right. So changing minds is. The one thing that anybody can do, no matter how old they are, no matter what their circle of acquaintances are, um, it's something that everyone can do, and it's a very serious thing, and it's easy. In the Renaissance, the historical Renaissance, certainly uh, things began happening in the 14th and 15th century, and the things that happened Began to change people's minds too. Of course, um, it wasn't that everyone's mind changed first, and then things started happening. But things started happening, and people said, "Oh, well, that's that's different," <laughs> you know, and, and and it's good, or it looked good to them. Uh, there were suddenly new possibilities that no one had dreamed of, and uh, when. The, the age of exploration began, people you know, obviously were forced to say, well, gee, maybe we don't know everything there is to know after all, which is, they did during the Middle Ages. It was Everything was settled.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: All the questions were answered. We've got to change our ways, but first we've got to change the way we think. Mm-hmm. We've got to understand that we are part of the living community. Not the masters of the living community. We're not the guardians of the living community. We are just another species. And we have the power to destroy that community. And when we do that, we destroy ourselves. People have got to understand that before anything can change. And people say, well, how will, how will we live in 200 years if there are still people here? I, say, I don't know. It would be like asking Thomas Aquinas, well, how would people live if there were to be a, a Renaissance and suddenly science were to replace faith? How in the world would he know that? <laughs> he couldn't possibly know that. I don't know. I don't know how people will live. But they will have to live a different way. Otherwise, we're not going to make it.
1: The key is changing minds. When people have new minds, then they will find new ways.